Uh, I'll try to be quick. So the, uh, this is very much of a work in progress, and more than let you know about what I think on the topic, I'm interested in what you think about the topic, so I can put it in a nice uh, paper eventually. Uh, as you can tell, uh, the, the subject of this talk is uh, quite timely, because uh, despite the fancy words, it's about um, the tension between cybersecurity and human rights in information age. Thanks to the NSA scandal, this is um, um, a very timely um, thing to talk about. The question I want to address is how we can balance cybersecurity and individual rights into the information age. I will start by sort of drawing the big picture, talking about how technology, and in particular the information technologies, are sort of reshaping the reality in which we live. Uh, I will then focus on the problem I want to address, which is specifically the relation between security rights and the very idea of um, balancing um, those two. And this will be the first part of the talk. Um, the second part will be uh, the work towards the answer to this, uh, to this question. And I am afraid it's not going to be a linear work toward the solution. We're going to take a few digressions. The first of which will be the introduction of the concept of the online persona. Can you see from there? Yes. Um, and the second one is the idea of the well-being of the online persona, for which I will uh, endorse the capability approach. On this, on, the, on this basis, I will introduce a list of uh, individual rights in the information age, the rights that we should claim as individual living into the information age. And this will pave the way to finally get um, the answer to our question. Uh, I will introduce the approach I'm going to endorse, which, is, which I call it the Wittlokian approach, but that's uh, just a label. Um, but this will pave the way to understand what's the criteria to reach an ethical balance between cybersecurity and individual liberty. So, the big picture. If there was just one word to describe reality um, after the information revolution, um, that would be the blurring. The blurring refers to the sort of fading away of all the lines that we used to think were there, um, defining with a sort of neat cut uh, distinctions such physical and um, real world, or uh, physical and virtual world, or military and uh, civil society, private and public. Think about the very distinction um, between the physical world and the cyber world. It's quite uncontroversial these days to think that those distinctions are, that distinction doesn't really make any sense anymore. We are online while we are in this room, or while you're waiting for the dentist, or mm, while grocery shopping. Or the distinction between the military and the civil uh, society. The cyber warfare uh, made quite, um, if, even if not obvious, let us, uh, let us at least rethink the idea that warfare was an activity that uh, only people with in, in uniform would perform. <coughs> and so is the distinction between private and public. And the distinction that is not uh, fading away just because our private staff is more and more exposed um, to the eye of um, an observer is also fading away because we are more um, willing to share and make public stuff that our parents or grandparents would have not even admitted uh, within the family itself. So what does it say? Well, it, all this fading and blurring, it's important to consider because it stresses the fact that the cybersphere is becoming an important part of the reality in which we, we live, a sort of constructive part of it. And this is true both at societal level. Think about how societies in these uh, days depend for their welfare, for example, from the internet economies. Those data, uh, data are not really up to date, I'm afraid, just because I think the next reports are due in a few months. But uh, it was reported from 2012 that the GDP of US and Japan depended for 40.7% from internet economy. The year before, in the UK, the internet economy was much more worth it than health, constructions, and education. It was about 
121 uh, billions. And even more scary than that is considering how the cybersphere is important for ourselves as individuals. Last year in July in the US, people spent in just one month 121 billions on social networks. In a country where not every person has uh, an health insurance, virtually every citizen has a Facebook account in the same month. And if didn't, this didn't scare you enough, uh, this might. A few years ago, so still I'm not up to date, uh, too much updated um, graph, but still, October 2011, worldwide, we'll spend 35 billion so now hours being online. Do you have an idea how much life you have to live to reach that point? Amazing. Uh, so why all this is all important? Well, on one side, uh, we see the cybersphere becoming very, very uh, important for the reality in which we live, for the life in which we live, for the society in which we spend our life. On the other side, we are accustomed to the idea that, well, on the cybersphere, there are some threats. There are uh, cyber attacks, people who try to steal uh, your personal information. If you have a Mac, you're not as safe as you were five or ten years ago. Too bad. But that's not the real issue. The real issue is that cyber threats in the form of cyber crime, terrorism, activism, warfare, are not anymore threats, or not considered anymore threats to your computer or to your iPhone. It's a threat to you as an individual of the information societies and to the societies at large. And this is where the problem starts to, uh, to rise. Uh, when he uh, started his second um, mandate, Obama stresses that um, America's economic prosperity in the 21st century will depend on cybersecurity. Now, we know that the guy was putting the money where his words were, but that's, again, not the point. The point is that we're witnessing a new trend that we went from considering cybersecurity something that was a market for private companies. Ten years ago, the moment you had a good word firewall, a good antivirus, and you were careful not to type some words in Google bars, you were safe on the cybersphere. To these days, cybersecurity, it's an issue for public uh, authorities. It's a duty for public authorities. If I hadn't convinced you so far, I saw that a couple of graphs more would, would do that much of a damage. So this one shows you the number of cyber lobbies uh, in the US in the past three years or four years. Up to 2009, uh, there were 93 lobbies. From 2010 to 2013, the number went skyrocketing to, skyrocketing to 513. And even more impressive is the fact that um, uh, it's considering the number of laws that the US Senate has passed considering uh, or regarding the communication of information. So this, this, these laws are not about cybersecurity or copyright material, it's about how we communicate information, trying to rule in this aspect. Now, if we go back to the moment in which telephones became popular, we can see that from uh, 1876 to uh, 1991, this covers uh, the Depression, the Great Deal, two world wars, the Cold War, there were just, I have to read it, 27 laws. In the past 20 years, the US Senate managed to pass other 29 laws just about communication of information. So why is this important? Well, when we talk about security in general, we talk about um, the reduction of foreseeable harm um, and resilience against crime. When we talk about cybersecurity, the issue is a bit more focused. It's about the confidentiality, the integrity, and the availability of data, and also the uh, integrity of computing systems and service providers. The importance of having uh, a public authority in that sphere it's uh, quite evident if you think that um, it brings, the presence of public authorities brings with it uh, the so-called legal certainty. The idea that a legal system and the laws of the legal system will be 
um, regulating also the cybersphere. And this is crucial because it generates trust. And trust, for those of you who might be familiar with issues related to computer ethics, is one of the engines of the cybersphere. But as much as we like legal certainty, it's the, exactly, it's the, the involvement of the public authorities into the cybersphere which makes the problem uh, uh, arise. How so? Well, to some extent, the problem of having public authorities regulating the cybersphere, it's not a real new problem. It's a sort of old problem in new shoes. I like this sentence from Will, which defines the struggle between liberties and authorities, um, the tension that exists between individual rights and the power of an authority who's trying to sort of bounding uh, or limiting those rights for the sake of the entire society. So it's not a real whole problem. Um, the point is that in societies as we know them, we, are, uh, we address this problem by putting in place uh, civil, civil society, uh, sorry, digital civil society and uh, judiciary systems that are there to bound or to limit the power of the law. Think about um, aspects such as the prohibition of uh, retrospective criminal law or the prohibition of torture. They are there to set some boundaries to the power of the state. When it comes to the cybersphere, uh, the issue is a bit more, um, uh, let's say, it's aggravated, or the solution is not that straightforward. And that's mainly due to the nature of the cybersphere, which is compounded or made of data, which in turn are malleable. They are uh, accessible, portable, and managed by third parties. And they can reveal sensitive personal information. To the point that um, the nature of the cybersphere sort of facilitates surveillance and controlling measures to the extent that it becomes feasible to wonder whether personal data and information could be completely accessible by those who enforce the measures and have adequate technology, running the risk to uh, undermine individual rights. And this is true for surveillance, but it's also true for censorship and filtering. It's the informational nature of the, of the digital sphere, of the cybersphere, that actually constitutes the real issues, because it makes it difficult to bound the power of um, uh, of state or of the public authorities. In a nice sentence, we could say that information technology sort of magnify the power uh, of the public authorities. So when coming uh, to addressing the struggle between liberties and authorities, the understanding behind it is that liberties and authorities, or cybersecurities and individual rights, are antithetical, or are in a sort of inverse relation. The former, the more you enjoy the former, the less you do uh, of the latter. And so the need to strike a balance uh, becomes quite, uh, quite pressing, and it has been increasingly pressing over the past few years, let alone the past few weeks, uh, thanks to the NSA. The issue, the NSA is kind of, the issue is there is what kind of balance do we want to strike? Where's the balance there? And this is where uh, the good old philosophy, or the philosophy, will help us. When we are uh, considering to balancing security and rights, we are facing a sort of spectrum of possibilities. At one end of the spectrum, uh, you might find those who believe that security is the priority. The security com comes first. Now, Ob's picture there is just to sort of symbolize you. Uh, uh, don't take it too literally. But uh, the idea for those that, uh, uh, that people uh, standing on, the, on, uh, on this side of the spectrum would defend is that public authorities, the link to public authorities, are defined uh, by the power themselves, are the facto, not the euro, and that security is the priority. Security is what drives democracy, it's not the other way around. For those who stand on this side of the spectrum, there is no need to get a balance. Security is not something that you can negotiate about. It's not there to be a sort of matter of trade-off. 
security trumps um, rights or trumps liberties. This approach to security is what uh, sort of what grounds uh, what is called the securitization of the right. The idea that um, security is what um, uh, provides the conceptual justification to any other rights. And so we don't need a justification to encroach or breach um, liberties or individual rights because those rights, those rights will not be there if there, were, there, were, there, were, there weren't there any security. It's the idea that security is the mother of all rights, no vice versa. If we were to look at the regulations and laws that have been passed until a few years ago, I have to say, um, <coughs> to manage and regulate the cybersphere, we will say that um, the UK, DAA, or France, um, Adobe, or also the deployment of digital right management, they will stand or lean uh, toward this side of, uh, of the spectrum. At the other side of the spectrum, you will find those who believe that liberty comes, liberties come first. Liberty is the priority. Again, take Locke as a symbol and not as a uh, literal, uh, let's say, uh, as a literal position. To those standing on this side of the, of the spectrum, the limits to public authorities are defined by the law of nature, by the human. Today we will identify law of nature roughly with human rights. And so liberties are the priorities. Security is just a condition to safely enjoy those liberties. But security is not the foundation, the conceptual foundation for the liberties. Surprisingly, also for those who stand on this side of the spectrum, there is no need for balancing. Balance is not an issue. Liberties are not there to be trade-off. Liberties trump security. You might find the disposition um, uh, endorsed by those who pursue the idea that, for example, um, IT systems should be designed so to protect privacy at any cost. So those who are not willing to give away, not even an inch of privacy, for the sake of security. Now, before, before moving forward, I wanted to stress one aspect of this position, um, both positions, and that is that they rest on a uh, peculiar understanding of the concept of security and one rights. Those mm, two parts of the spectrum rest on a common aspect, that is, understanding security and rights as absolute. Now, when I call them absolute, I don't want to mean that they are universal. I just refer to them as an absolute, uh, quoting um, a paper from Ugo Pagallo, by meaning that those rights are understood as binary. Either you have liberties or you don't. According to those standing on this part of the, of the spectrum, either you have liberties or you don't. They are yes or no rights. You cannot have liberties to some degrees. So that's why you don't balance them with security, because they, you can only have liberties without negotiating uh, uh, some sort of minor level of liberty. Before moving forward, so let's consider what kind of rights do we want to balance against security measures. The first of which would be privacy. Anytime you mention cybersecurity, anytime you mention personal information, privacy will jump uh, uh, touching attention. Now, the interesting thing about privacy is that the definition of this right has sort of evolved over the years. And it goes almost hand in hand with the development of technology. We first learned, or we first started to appreciate privacy um, at the end of uh, the 19th centuries, when Warren and Brandes famously defined it as the right to be left alone. And that was in response to the publication of private pictures of movie stars. Cameras started to be around. <coughs> a few years later, well, it's almost a century later, but we can, uh, we're philosophers, we're not that keen on history, right? So uh, <laughs> privacy became the rights of self-determining the condition for sharing personal information. And it's interesting to notice that in the very same years, databases started to become uh, 
not popular, but uh, something that people would use. And with the, uh, the next step, with the dissemination of the web to zero, privacy became the freedom from the universal constraints to the construction, a reasonable constraint, sorry, to the constructions of one's own identity. And this definition is something that uh, might be worth considering. There are two aspects which be relevant for the rest of this talk. One thing is that the definition links privacy and identity. It considers identity dynamic, but also it stresses the relative nature of privacy. So according to this definition, the stuff that can happen online will have an effect on the process of determining or understanding who you are. And on the other side, well, privacy is not really a yes or no right. Because well, the process of determining uh, or being freedom, free of determining who you are without constraint, can be sort of put or can encounter some limitation insofar as those are reasonable limitations. So the right to privacy is not a yes or no uh, right. Another right that has been uh, stressed as important uh, to be considered against the case of uh, cyber against or balanced against cybersecurity is the data protection right. This has been included in the uh, Charter for Fundamental Rights by the European <coughs> Union. And this right basically is about mm, identifying the data subject, controller, and processors, and defining also the grounding for data processing. The, ra the rights also stresses that um, we shouldn't be subject to automated decisions insofar as this may have significant impact or legal effort. And even this right is not meant to be an absolute right in Pagallo's term. Insofar, we, are, we can be actually subject <coughs> to automated decisions as long as the effects of those decisions are not really relevant or do not bring with them some uh, legal implication. And if you weren't uh, convinced already, uh, the right to private uh, transparency. Uh, this is a right that has been uh, more and more considered in the uh, debate on cybersecurity. It refers to the fact that you should know that you are being treated in a different way because you're the subject uh, of a profiling, and you will be able, or you should have the right to object to such a treatment. So you should be aware, made aware of the stuff that you know, the profiling and the collecting of data about yourself. The point is that profiling is one of the crucial aspects for criminal investigation or for intelligence gathering. And it will work in those fields insofar as it's secret. So, to some extent, even the uh, right to transparency, we accept that by a current degree, it's not a yes or no right. And uh, finally, the, f the right to uh, freedom of speech which is a fundamental right, and uh, none of us, I think, would, uh, on paper, accept any restriction to that right. Now, this is a twofold right, because on the one side is the idea that we should be free from any form of monitoring and filtering and censorship uh, while assessing information. On the other side, it's also the right that claims public authorities to intervene, so for us to enjoy the right to freedom of speech in, in, in our private spheres. Well, there are two examples that I wanted to uh, bring to your attention. <coughs> uh, European Union prohibits member states to impose control uh, on internet service providers, but there is nothing that prohibits um, or forbids the internet service providers to monitor the nets by themselves. So there is, to some extent, uh, a degree to which authorities or a third party can monitor and filter whatever we ask us on the cyber sphere. But even more uh, interesting, we, ask, we, we accept on a daily basis that the information we access, the knowledge we, uh, we want to acquire, is filtered and monitored. Think about Google Instant and how all the answers to your queries surprisingly match all your expectations. And so far, because they are based on 
knowing what you're looking for, where you are, what your needs are, and where your, the thing your life usually is. So even the right to freedom, the freedom of speech, does come to be with. It's not a yes or no right. So with this part, we sort of uh, conclude the introductory, uh, introductory part of this talk. Uh, it's a philosophy talk at the end of the day, so the stones that we turned so far did nothing but raise more questions. And we're going to face this three, one, three more uh, in the second part of this uh, of the talk. Just want to see how much time we have. Um, so three questions. The first question that uh, um, I will focus on is whether privacy and its covenant rights are the only one we should consider when thinking about balancing individual rights and cybersecurity measures. The second one is about whether we should think about the life uh, that we spend online as something that affects our overall well-being. And finally, what kind of um, rights, but also what kind of things do we need to achieve <coughs> a good life as individuals living into the information age? So this, the answer to these three questions will sort of pave the way to answer to the question about balancing uh, cybersecurity and individual rights. And here is where we start the digressions I was telling you about uh, from the beginning of this talk. Uh, the first thing is the online persona. Uh, individual living in the information age sort of constructs the identities, also through their identities, also through the online persona. This may seem a sort of controversial claim, but very much, um, it's, it's a, I take it to be a very minimal sense. Think about all the experiences that can be performed online and that might have an input on the perception of who you are, how you interact with the, with the environment and with the other people. Examples are provided by uh, literature in psychology or social studies. People who experience traumatic stuff on the cyber sphere, cyber harassment, cyber bullying, and then show post-traumatic uh, behavior in the real world. Teenagers who typically commit suicide or uh, start using drug, drugs or alcohol. Um, they show that there is a link between the experience you perform somewhere else in the cyber sphere and who you become at the end of the day in your real life. The online persona in all this uh, scenario, it's not your social profile. It's not the character you are in a chat room. It's not even the avatar on uh, Second Life, uh, if you were around uh, in this field a few years ago. It's a more minimalist concept. The online persona is something that exists insofar as we act and interact in the cybersphere. And it's something that um, emerges in relation to the actions that we perform, insofar as those actions generate data and information. Think about the data and information related to the action that we perform online as the archaeological fundings uh, in a geographic area. They are scattered all over the place, and they are there. They are like just scrambles. But the moment you are able to organize them, those scrambles, those pieces, they'll tell you a story. And that's the online persona. It emerges once the data about the actions of someone's online are put together. And the online persona tells you the story, the narrative of those actions. Now, the claim I'm making is that individual rights granted in the information age should be concerned with the narrative of the online persona, and they should not just protect it. They should foster its flourishing, because the flourishing of the online persona is somehow related to the well-being of the online persona and then of the individuals. And this leads us to our second uh, digression. What's the well-being in the information age? There are plenty of theories of well-being. But I like this one from uh, Amaritza, and it's called the uh, capability approach. It's a very well-known theory, so I'm sure I'm not telling you anything uh, really new. The definition of well-being is, according to this theory, is that the well-being uh, is nothing but the effective capabilities of individuals to achieve some valuable functions. Valuable functionings are 
the thing that you desire, the states and the actions that you will consider valuable for yourself insofar they are part of the, or they will fulfill the project that you have for your life. The thing that you consider valuable since they will make you a better person or realize your uh, wishes in a, in a simply, uh, simply matter. The functions are parts of the project that an individual might have and whose achievement has a positive impact on um, her life. Functionings are an important part for the definition of well-being, but they are the descriptive side or side of this definition. What's really important or really important to us as philosophers are the capabilities. The capabilities are the normative part of this definition. Uh, according to the um, capability approach, uh, capabilities refer both uh, to effective to a sort of concept of effective freedom. So it's freedom from obstacles uh, which might sort of prevent us to achieve some uh, valuable functions. Think about discrimination. Being a woman who wanted to drive a car in Syria, uh, if driving is a valuable function to you, the discrimination is going to uh, be in your way. But capabilities also refer to the fact that you might have functions that are co-possible, that you can pursue different goals in your life without having to sacrifice one for the other. So wanting to travel and having kids, just to turn example. Now, the, capabili the capabilities or the concept of effective freedom has a tripartite nature. Um, and a few aspects of this nature are very important for the purposes of this talk. First of all, um, it's the idea of non being prevented from um, achieving your functions. And the non prevention is not just about um, uh, the discrimination, we, as we were saying before, it's also about not or being freed from what we should call choice insensitive obstacles. And those refers go all the way around to the environment in which you are. So a choice in sensitive obstacles to your well-being would be living in an area which is affected by malaria, um, coming from a very poor and uh, degraded part of the cities. In a, in, in a situation or in a society where the well-being uh, of the individuals is, poor, is, uh, is a goal, those uh, obstacles should be removed. Capabilities are also, means also the possibility of having the means, the opportunity to pursue what you think is important for you. And finally, as functioning should be always the result of a free choice, you should be able also to discard functions, to for let, let them go, to forgo them. Now, why is this important? Uh, there are three aspects of this theory which uh, are very interesting. The first thing is that, unlike any other theory of distributed justice, the capability approach decouples the goods, the content of a good life from the possibility to achieve them. And this is a very important move. Because from the one side, on the one side, the capabilities approach doesn't tell us what is actually the content, what is what we should pursue in order to achieve the good life. That's left up, up to us. On the other side, it stresses the idea of the capabilities. And capabilities are related to the very concept of rights. Now, on this slide, you can see that there is a distinction between claim and liberty rights, on which I'm going to mm, uh, come back in a few slides. But uh, the idea that is important to grasp here is that the capabilities are what are the stuff that we're going to focus on because the rights we want to pursue or we want to claim for ourselves are meant to be there to protect our capabilities to achieve whatever functions we want. So the step is functioning, capabilities, rights. I'm going to show you in a moment a list of functions that are valuable for the online persona. There are two provisos here. Those li this list is not meant to be exhaustive. I, I didn't want and I can possibly list all the possible valuable stuff for individual living in the information age. And I am not interested in, in considering those functions that might be valuable because of the inclination of the character or the aspirations of individuals. The point of the list I'm gonna, you're going to see in a moment is to show 
what I call constitutive functionings of the online persona. The um, capability approach has been um, put forward by Emily Sand, but Martha Nussbaum um, has further uh, developed the analysis, and she put forward the idea of fundamental functionings to define those functionings that are essential to human beings to exist as human beings, so having food and having shelter. Think of the functioning I'm going to show in a moment as those functions that are es essential to the online persona to exist. So, I'll show you all in once. So the first functioning is accessing and communicating shared valuable information. We say the online persona exists insofar as one acts and interacts in the cybersphere. All we do on the cybersphere is communicate information. So the status and the, ability, the possibility of exchanging information is crucial to the very existence of the online persona. The possibility of expressing, sharing, and constructing its own narrative is as much functional, as much as essential, because it refers to the autonomy of the online persona to steer independently its actions and then to shape, shape its own uh, narrative. And finally, high levels of connectivity. Well, the online persona exists, as we say, insofar as it's part of the cyberspace, insofar as we act on it. So the possibility of being connected or being part of a network of agents and other persona is crucial to its flourishing. Now remember, those functionings are what, we're gonna want, what, what we want to achieve, but they are not the end of the road. They are just the next crossroad that we are going to uh, walk through. And the next step is to understand how we can protect or enhance our capabilities to achieve these functions. And for these reasons, we have rights. The first right uh, that are uh, claiming individual living in contemporary society should claim for themselves is the very access to the cybersphere, to computational and informational resources. In order for the cyber, cyber persona, the online persona to exist and to flourish, <coughs> you need computational power. You need power itself. You need access to the cybersphere. Otherwise, there is uh, uh, nothing that can possibly flourish. Uh, the right to engage in pluralistic and transparent and fair online interactions, being free for any kind of um, censorship, filtering, and encroachment, or mm, boundaries to the experience you could perform online. The right to accept some level of control on the way the online persona is treated. And I like to think about this right as a sort of operational definition of privacy. It's the idea that the story and the narrative that can be put or can be told about the data that are online, it's about the online persona. So there should be some level of control about how the narrative is told, what story is told on the basis of the data uh, on the online persona. And finally, the right to be secure or to act in a secure cybersphere. Now, there are three points about these slides that might be, uh, or that I think they're relevant. The first one is that we're going beyond privacy. I'm not saying that privacy is not important anymore, that we should disregard it, that privacy is dead. Not really. I'm just saying that privacy, insofar as it's uh, fundamental and necessary, is not sufficient to guarantee our well-being into the information age, that we should claim more. The second is that none of this right is meant to be binary or absolute, as we said uh, security and liberty might be considered for those who claim the extreme position in the spectrum. And finally, that uh, actually cybersecurity or security measures, which at the beginning of this talk seem to be completely opposite, antithetical to uh, individual liberties, well, they are in the list of the rights we should claim for themselves. So security seems to be actually a right more than something opposite to our rights. In order to prevent any sort of confusion uh, here, it might be worth considering the distinction between liberty and claim rights. 
This is a distinction that was put forward um, more than a century ago by a legal scholar, Hofeld, and you have to excuse the name is German and that my German is very bad. Mm-hmm. But German from origins. Mm-hmm. Uh, so had this idea that rights are compounded, mm, made up from elements which he called incidents. And he distinguishes between <coughs> among four incidents. The claim, the liberty, the power and the autonomy. Now we can forget power and autonomy for the purposes of this talk, but I'm going to focus to liberty and claims. According to Ophelt, um, liberty and claim rights are distinguished because they have different logical forms. A liberty right is a right that exists because the right bearer has the liberty to perform a given action, and this means that he, he or she has no duty not to perform that action. I have the right to walk barefoot in my back garden, if and only if I have no duty not to walk barefoot in my garden. A claim right, on the other side, is a right that exists because the right holder has a claim towards someone else to perform a certain action. I have the right or the claim that um, the Oxford Council come and collect my garbage once a week, if and only if the Oxford Council has the duty to do so every week. So my claim is sort of corresponding to the duty of uh, the other part. We can say that the first three rights on this slide are liberty rights. They, do, they rest on the fact that you don't have, or we shouldn't have, any uh, prohibition, any boundaries to perform those actions. The last right is a claim right. It's a claim that individuals have towards public authorities to keep the cyber security, uh, the, cyber, the cybersphere secure. And so we are reaching the end of this talk. How much time do I? Uh, five, five or ten minutes. Okay. So toward the end of this talk, I, t- I promised that I would sort of delineate some sort of possible answer. And to do so, I have to uh, recall the uh, spectrum we saw at the beginning, um, just to uh, introduce what I call the weak locking approach. That's the approach I think it should be endorsed to uh, find a balance between cybersecurity and individual liberties. The idea is that uh, we should deflate the concept of security and individual rights understand that those concepts are not, or those rights, they are not binary. They can be, you can fine tune security and liberties. You can find a trade-off. The approach is um, meant to be a weak Lockean watch, uh, one, because it leans toward the, uh, the Lockean end of the spectrum, but doesn't go all the way to the end of the spectrum. Liberty and rights can be uh, fine-tuned, but liberty rights are meant to be, or should be considered, prominent with respect to uh, security measures. So that's the idea. We can compromise on liberties, and so far liberties become or are, are meant to be more important than security. In this approach, uh, cybersecurity measures are a precondition for the enjoyment of uh, individual liberties and allows individuals to achieve their well-being in the information age, but that's nothing new. The idea is that cybersecurity measures are a pragmatic precondition to maximize the possibility of enjoying individual liberties. And I will stress the pragmatic precondition to maximize the possibility of enjoyment of the liberties. Cybersecurity measures do not provide the conceptual condition for the, the other rights. We are not going toward the securitization of the rights. They don't provide any justification. Cybersecurity measures are just a pragmatic precondition. On the other side, liberties are not absolute. They are not binary rights. We can compromise on those. And we need to compromise on those if we want to enjoy them at the maximum possible level. So we need to give up some of those paradoxically, paradoxically to get the best that we can from the liberties. 
So the criterion at the end is that the balance between authorities and liberties, cybersecurity and individual rights, can be reached or can be achieved when the former, the cybersecurity part, is meant to be preparatory to the achievement of the latter. And cybersecurity measures are preparatory to the achievement of individual liberties insofar as they are used or deployed just to remove obstacles that are there from uh, how in our path to achieve valuable functions. So cybersecurity measures are meant to be instrumental and we can consider them as a way to once wipe away stuff that uh, is there to obstacle us. One proviso must be uh, put in place and the idea is that um, the threats that are, me are, are meant to be removed should be removed in a way that is always <coughs> consistent to the fulfillment of the well-being of the online persona. So we should accept the, well, we should consider as acceptable the, only those measures that are strictly necessary and nothing more than that. Um, if you were um, uh, paying attention to the slides on the capability approach, um, there was a definition of the capabilities which stressed the fact that in a society where public authorities are there to mm, improve or, flourish or make flourish our well-being, the public authorities have the duty to remove um, choice-insensitive obstacles. And we can consider threats and arms as choice-insensitive obstacles. And so we can consider, according to the capability approach, um, the action of removing them as something that falls within the duty of the public authorities. The point is, is that this duty should never breach our liberties more than what is strictly necessary. Uh, on the side, um, while preparing this talk, I was considering a few uh, rules and policies that are in place, and it was very interesting to notice that the European Union has uh, recently put forward a Policy and Criminal Justice Data Protection Directive, which endorses this very same uh, approach. The idea of do, doing just what is strictly necessary to guarantee security. So just to wrap up this talk, three key points, I think. Uh, we start considering how the cybersphere is becoming an important aspect of the reality in which we live and something that contributes to our well-being. When considering individual rights into the information age, the idea was to move from focusing just or mainly on privacy to move on uh, a wider set of rights that might support our well-being. And finally, uh, when considering the how to balancing cybersecurity measures and individual rights, a criterion has been uh, sort of suggested, and the idea is that we consider cybersecurity measures as a precondition to maximize the possibilities of individuals uh, to achieve their well-being. And that's it. <laughs>